Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you hear those words, you can feel good knowing that. State Farm is there to help you feel supported with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. Now, let me tell you, girl, I don't got a boat, a motorcycle, or an RV, but State Farm covers my home and my car. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help protect your future by helping you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And you know what? Getting insurance can be so intimidating because you don't know exactly what you need. So having an agent that could help you with each step makes it so much easier. Girl, I feel you on that. So when things get complicated and you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Maybe you like to handle things in person or on the phone with your local agent, or you prefer to do it on statefarm.com or on the award-winning app. State Farm lets you do things your way. I personally am the type of gal that likes to do things through an app. It just makes it more easier than going in person or hopping on a call. So I love that they have that option available. Girl, I like to use an app too. I'm not trying to pull up a person or or a call because I'm way too, I have too much social anxiety for that. I'm trying to do it on the app. So that's why I'm here with State Farm. And that is why, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers Thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I'm a small business owner, and I believe that this is a great tool for other small business owners. In small businesses, you need to create a team. And if you're starting by yourself, Constant Contact can be the team that you need. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by the 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This was a year that business really stepped up to the plate and said they were going to get involved. I have never seen a situation where almost every single CEO and C-suite member I have met wants to talk to some degree about environmental, social and governance issues. We do know that the 2020s are going to be absolutely critical. The UN science consensus has said that emissions have to start coming down fast right now by 7% a year. Last year, they went up. Unfortunately, we've seen some governments come out and show that they're dragging their feet like the American government, and we haven't seen a clear-cut consensus amongst the leaders to act on a political sense. In this world today, what is required for just the most basic needs for people, that is probably not the bulk of the energy needs that we consume. That more of the energy we consume is actually serving consumption that potentially could be reduced quite significantly without reducing human well-being. 
The world is indeed going into two directions, and I've heard that from a lot of people that are looking at 2019 as a mixed bag. Welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that explores how we can change the world. This episode, we take a final look at 2019 and a look forward to the decade of the 2020s. That's right. This is our holiday special. Do you hear the jingle bells? We are going to hear some of our favorite moments from Global Goalscast this year, including the most interesting facts and actions our partners have offered you. Yes, and for that reason, I brought my very special voice, my sexy voice for this episode. So in this episode, we will ask the question that I know the answer to. Is the world getting better? Or, like your voice, is it going to hell in a handbasket? Or maybe a bit of both. No, in reality, Edie, that is complicated because even if you're like a super optimist like me, there are days when it doesn't feel that good. Actually, it might feel bad. So to help us think about the year 2019 and about the years to come, we will have a very special guest, one of our very favorite visitors here at the Global Ghostcast. We will tell you who that is and crack open our holiday cheer right after this. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world in which the digital economy works for everyone, everywhere. By educating and enabling these women, they pass it on to their children, and therefore that next generation grows up with a greater set of rights and education and aspirations. Later in this episode, you'll hear how MasterCard's Digital Wage Project is helping women and their families. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music, and to Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. Welcome back. I'm Claudia Romo Edelman in my new sexy voice. <laughs> and I am Edie Lush. And later, drumroll, we're going to have a very special guest. <laughs> it's going to be Jillian Tett from the Financial Times. It's such a joy to have Jillian with us. We don't really think of Jillian as a guest, more like family. Yeah, because Moral Money, which she launched this year for the FT, seems muy simpatico to the work that we're doing here. It's kind of like Global Goals Cast, but with charts. And in pink. And so 2019 has been quite a year, I would say, Edie. We're going to break it down for you and give you our end-of-year forecast for where the world is headed. And spoiler alert, I do not think that things are nearly as bad as they seem. We are not going to hell in a handbasket, Edie. What about being on the highway to hell? I'm actually tempted (laughs) to get you to sing that for me, but maybe with your throat the way it is, I'm not going to. But the failure of the climate talks did not inspire hope for me sitting here in London. So we're going to wrestle with all that and a lot more, but what kind of year was 2019 here at Global Goalscast? Have a listen to some of our high points. How dare you! You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. 
at the end of the day, it's not about solving climate change. At the end of the day, it's giving a decent life to everybody on this planet Earth. The world's human population is a subject that was at the forefront 30, 40 years ago, when many people said, it's the biggest problem for the world. Since then, we've learned, no, it's not the biggest problem for the world. What counts is not the raw number of people. What counts is their total consumption rate. It's becoming increasingly impossible to have a stable world with big differences in standards of living around the world. And the only stable outcome is going to be a world with much more equal standards of living around it. We were trying to set up a library, and we asked the children to draw a computer, and they could not even fathom what a computer was. As long as you have access to connectivity, and we're seeing more and more connectivity in the developing world, it is possible to actually access lots of computing power, as long as you can pay for it, lots of storage, more data, and in fact these software tools that allow you to do machine learning and do AI. One of the big red flags that I have is how AI particularly could accentuate exclusion. This is the thing that worries me most, which is that we get a set of policy and guidance developed by a bunch of white men in Silicon Valley that tries to speak to the world. I think and we know Michael Chui called him male and pale. There you go. <laughs> I'll steal that. But that same technology is something that we're using to detect schools. We can pull a school out of a satellite image, for example, in, in Liberia, where we can see through machine learning where schools are. And that lets us understand where to send equipment, supplies, material, and teachers in a way that we wouldn't if we didn't have that data. So for the first time this year, we got to celebrate the International Day of the Girl with them. And we gave some computers and they started their coding lessons, getting to see that they have not put themselves in this tiny box that the world puts them in. Their dreams are quite big. It's very inspiring. It doesn't matter that I'm a refugee. That is only a status, but it's never written on my face, never written on anything of mine. It's never going to determine my destiny because I'm the one to write my destiny. I write my own story. To invest in these girls, to see them differently, not just as object of development, but see them as women who can actually do something with their life and give them jobs and skills and give them the dignity back. If you use the term global feminism, you understand feminism all around the world. It is not only from a Western perspective. You know that the facts are so outrageous, so extreme. The disempowerment is so extreme. The world doesn't understand that we move because of reasons that we can't handle. And people tend to follow what the media tells about migrants and refugees, seen as people that come in to steal jobs, criminals. And so as a result, no one knows what our actual stories are. The stories of migrants and refugees, I think, should be told more. With the place I've opened, I'm also providing training, showing some youth that are interested in computers and computer sciences. I see myself as a peacemaker and I dream of a place where we are able to, to live free of children going into armed groups, like the way I did. I always say as a joke that in the DRC, when you take your tomato, you wash your tomato, you throw the water, you come a month after you have a tomato plant. But it is true, it's not a joke. If a end is brought to the conflict, I would be ready to go back to DRC in a few years' time, not to be distributing food, 
but to be buying food from the DRC. The world has existed for 45 million centuries, but this is really the first century when one species, the human species, can determine the planet's fate. We use more resources and we are having a heavy footprint which is affecting the biosphere and affecting the climate. You developed countries, you created this problem. You have to cut your emissions. We developing nations, you cannot tell us that we can't do what you did. And I showed them that under that scenario, Shanghai would be almost certainly inundated. Shenzhen would be inundated. And at that point I said, so what does this mean? And what I heard translated in my earpiece was, we have to leave the past in the past. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I think what we are really seeing in this world is many people are dreaming for a better world than we have currently. If you want to change the trajectory of kind of the collective behavior, sometimes you can actually just shift by the murmuring of a few birds, right? To start to flock, starts to move in a different direction. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Jonathan Franzen just the other day said, we should just give up, it's over. If you believe, as he does, that it's too late, that people are never going to learn to cooperate, you are going to get to be right. Because you're not going to do a darn thing about it. And so do you want to be right or do you want to make a difference? It's time to fight. This is not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Wow, that brought back a lot of memories, Edie. Right? 13 so episodes, good. 14 with this one. Our audio genius, Simon James, was there for every one of them and created that amazing review, that nostalgia. That was amazing, right? All right, let's start analyzing the year. Let's start with global political landscape. So I felt like we were moving in two directions at once in 2019. It's a little bit like that finger game. I don't know if it's Mexican or Chinese. I used to buy them when I went to Tijuana. Like you put your fingers in and then you both pull. Yeah, they're Mexican. Thank you. <laughs> okay. They're called atrapanovios, which is basically like a boyfriend catcher. Oh, my and God. It's okay. meant to be a toy for girls. So you put it on the finger of the boy you like and then you pull and there's no way he can escape <laughs> until he gives in. So what do you think about my analogy? Is it the right one? Well, I think that the world is indeed going into two directions. And I've heard that from a lot of people that are looking at 2019 as a mixed bag. On the one hand, there's never been more wealth, more health, more people living in decent lives, eliminating extreme poverty. As the former Secretary General, my former boss, Ban Ki-moon, said, we are the first generation that can eradicate extreme poverty. And that is amazing. And at the same time, pulling the other way, there is spreading discontent. We're seeing rising political movements in the Middle East, Iran, yeah, Iraq, Well, you almost Lebanon. moved to the Middle East, right? <laughs> I know, I've been there several times. <laughs> and we've also seen a new nationalism or even nativism infecting places like the U.S., China, Brazil, India, Eastern Europe, and of course, Russia. Hard to call it new there. I live in the UK and we just had yet another election. And I would argue that the union of the United Kingdom is the biggest loser at this last election because nationalism has risen in every country, including yeah. Scotland and Northern Ireland. 
And I don't think that this is going to stop. All signs are saying that this will continue worsening. And I do think that that sense of I don't believe that the system is working and particularly governments are inefficient and unethical is going to probably hurt multilateralism massively. And we saw the failure of multilateralism, of course, this last weekend at COP25 in Madrid. But we are the optimists and we have to remind ourselves that multilateralism isn't dead. Even at this time of isolationism, there was a massive multilateral victory that many people, including me, in fact, missed. I didn't realize until I read Mark Suzman of the Gates Foundation, who wrote an article the other day where he said the biggest news no one paid any attention to was the replenishment of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. In October, the Global Fund secured $14 billion of new funding. Yoo-hoo! Yeah, remember Sue Desmond Hellman earlier this year? It literally is impossible for me to overstate how much... Global Fund and Gavi have contributed to everything we celebrate in global health. I'll give you just one fact. Since 1990, under five mortality has been cut in half. It is not at all an overstatement to say, if not for the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and malaria, and Gavi for vaccines for the poorest children of the world, the world would have never seen that kind of gains. Yes, yes. This shows how important political will is. IED, as you might recall, I was part of two replenishments when I was working for the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And I tell you, the newest one really was carried by President Macron in a way that he put his political will behind it. He made sure that France was pushing hard to raise his money. He brought, you know, like Europe, he brought his political will everywhere. Governments, philanthropists, business got together in Lyon. Perhaps... That's the new multilateralism. So we start here because the greatest challenge to achieving the global goals is not technological or even economic. It's political. We have the resources and the tools to do most of what's needed, and yet we aren't doing it. So we need our smartest thinking caps to help sort us out which is why we've invited Jillian Tett back, and it's not just for the very special studio eggnog. Well, here in this studio, we have the Mexican ponche with rum that Jillian (laughs) and I will start enjoying as soon as we are out of this. So, Jillian, what's your take on political landscape 2019? Well, I'll take any kind of alcohol in studio these days. Um, (laughs) I think we need it because there's been plenty of depressing stuff in the last year. Unfortunately, we've seen some governments come out and show that they're dragging their feet, like the American government. And we haven't seen a clear-cut consensus amongst the leaders to act on a political sense. However, this was a year that business really stepped up to the plate and said they were going to get involved. We've seen extraordinary number of commitments and involvement from corporate leaders and financial sector leaders. And that's really potentially going to be a game-changer. Whether that turns into action after the brave words remains to be seen, and that's going to be a key theme for 2020. But what is encouraging is that even as governments have prevaricated or become split, business has become much more unified and much more proactive. And do you think that they are ready? Well, mobilizing business, in my view, requires really a sort of four-part strategy. First, they have to wake up and recognize that they actually have a duty to the wider world 
other than just the shareholders. And that has definitely happened this year. If you look at things like the Business Roundtable and the statement they made about stakeholder purpose or stakeholder commitments, that's very significant. Secondly, business has to have a framework to talk about what kind of action it could or should take. And I must say, I think the Sustainable Development Goals have been an extraordinarily successful tool that many businesses have used to really frame that discussion. You can criticise the SDGs for being too cumbersome and complex, but for business, it provides a wonderful checklist to talk to each other with. Thirdly, they have to start actually putting their money where their mouth is in relation to the SDGs and actually doing things. And we're starting to see that action. There's a lot of impediments, but they are at least starting to move. But fourthly, business has to recognise the limits of their ability. And that means they need to be very clear about what the policy sector has to do rather than them. And also where there are areas that actually are better performed by NGOs rather than profit-seeking enterprises. Again, I think there is action on that front, but getting the three legs of that stool to work together, the government, the NGOs and business, is going to be another key theme for 2020. Before we go any further, let's take a quick break to hear another story from our sponsor, MasterCard, on how they are making the digital economy work for everyone. I know that women are important to MasterCard. I've spoken to so many of the amazing women that work for MasterCard. I wonder, in your words, why it's important that you and MasterCard help to benefit women. Women, especially in emerging markets, are significantly more at risk than their male counterparts. They're especially more at risk when they're paid in cash wages. They have less control of it. They're at greater risk of being pickpocketed. They can be mugged on their way home. In these factory towns, everybody knows which Friday is payday. They know exactly the journey that people are taking. Some of these women travel by bus or train or walk for hours to get to work. In some countries, it's also common, as I've said earlier, for women to just hand over their wages to the men in their lives. But we've allowed them and we're helping them with careful training on how to talk to their families about digital wages. We've also seen a dynamic shift in some households in which those women get more of a say in how the home finances are managed. And we also know that because women are so focused on their children and the next generation, by educating and enabling these women, they pass it on to their children. And therefore that next generation grows up with a greater set of rights and education and aspirations. Smallholder farmers around the globe are equally uh, in emerging markets, generally still in cash-based ecosystems. So we have partnered, as we've done in the garment sector, with large commodities players and are working with them to digitize payments out to smallholder coffee farmers in places like Chiapas, Mexico and outside of Bogota, Colombia. And we're also now looking to Western Africa. So to take the cash operations out of the supply chain for smallholder farmers, in fact, allows them to reap a more full value for their cash crop as it goes to market than they are when they have to stop through middlemen along the way. 
Thanks to Laura McKenzie from our sponsor, MasterCard. Now, back to our end-of-year review. So the second thing that we want to discuss about 2019 is inequality. Inequality that seems to be the most important driving force for anger and for distrust and for fear. We see not only the widening gap on money, but it's also access to technology and to education. So inequality has to be addressed. Inequality is bringing people to wonder, is this system working for me? Is capitalism really going to ever be helpful? Is globalization ever going to touch my wallet and my home? Is democracy really a system that would allow me to thrive? The UNDP, Claudia, said very much the same thing just the other day. Inequality is the force driving social discontent. In fact, Akeem Steiner said, What was once sufficient, namely to measure per capita income, is simply no longer adequate in capturing inequality in the 21st century. The capabilities approach, the kind of educational opportunities we have, the families we are born into, all this begins to define a life's journey. And as we look towards addressing the increasing tensions around inequality and development choices and outcomes, we also need to move beyond averages. Simply having a per capita GDP measurement tool is not adequate and we have to move beyond today because the advent of new technologies, the threat of climate change are also emerging as major drivers of inequality in the 21st century. Which is fascinating, Edie, because the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, created a broad definition of equality five years ago. And it was not just wealth or income, but clean water, electric power, education for boys and girls, and responsible consumption, the way that Jared Diamond told us earlier this year. Consumption rates, meaning consumption rates of water, fuel, and other resources, metals, in the developed world, on the average, about 32 times those in the poorest countries. And that means that one American citizen has the impact of the world of 32 Kenyans. I mention specifically Kenyans because there are many Americans who feel indignant and concerned about the growing population of Africa. And yes, it's a tragedy for Africa, but as far as the impact on the world is concerned, 50 million Kenyans are equivalent to 1.7 million Americans. Kenya is trivial for its impact on the world. The ultimate inequality. That goes to the heart of what I was talking about with Professor Narasimha Rao. He's so cool. He's the professor of energy systems, right? Yeah, at my alma mater, Yale University. He's been looking at how much energy it will take to lift up the remaining 700 million extremely poor people, including those 14 million Kenyans living on less than $1.90 a day. His answer is encouraging. What we found in general in principle is that the needs of poverty eradication are relatively small compared to the total energy demand in these countries. Even in a country like India, where 15 to 80 percent of people lack any of these dimensions of decent living standards, which indicates that the bulk of energy use today is really serving more the affluence in the middle class services such as driving in automobiles and flying and more kind of conspicuous luxury consumption, but not so much meeting basic needs. And this is increasingly the case as you move towards middle income countries like Brazil and South Africa. And so that provides more evidence that in this world today, what is required for just the most basic needs for people, that is probably not the bulk of the energy needs 
that we consume, that more of the energy we consume is actually serving consumption that potentially could be reduced quite significantly without reducing human well-being. And he echoes Diamond's point that as we become more affluent, we become more wasteful. Material resources are serving a lot of non-material needs, such as social status, acceptance in society. And we need to move away from that because that reflects a certain amount of resource use and environmental degradation that is not really necessary for people to flourish. Jillian, can we have a world that's more equal that uses less carbon? Well, that is one of the big questions right now because there's a tremendous contradiction or irony in this whole inequality debate. On the one hand, groups inside Western countries are talking a lot about inequality and that's driving populism. But of course, the level of inequality between countries has actually been shrinking in the last decade, which is actually good news overall. Now, in theory, that would imply that a lot of the emerging market in developing countries should feel less angry about being asked to do some heavy lifting when it comes to climate change. In practice, however, many of them are arguing quite correctly that it seems somewhat unfair for the developing world to lecture them about the need to potentially curb emissions and maybe hide their growth, while the developed world has already had the benefits of developing on the back of a lot of carbon emissions. So that's going to be very tough in the next year ahead. But perhaps there's another thing to think about, which is the idea of reverse innovation. Because what we're starting to see is a wave of innovation in the emerging markets in relation to climate change and other big social challenges, where people are taking out small innovative ideas, which are often very, very cheap because they have to be developed for poor countries, which sometimes actually leapfrog some of the big expensive ideas being developed in the West. And increasingly, we're starting to see trickle-back, where ideas developed in emerging markets come into the West and start to solve some of the climate change problems, or at least deal with some of the issues, even though they've come out of poorer economies and tougher conditions. At the end of the day, it's not about solving climate change. At the end of the day, it's giving a decent life to everybody on this planet Earth. That was Paul Pullman from our episode about his new firm, Imagine. But of course, we do need to avert global warming. So Claudia, tell me a little about when you were at the UN in 2015 and how the SDGs and the climate agenda came together. Well, they were separate animals. So there were the sustainable development goals that took forever to be created, five years, and you know the consensus of 193 countries getting to agree on those 17 goals. And meanwhile, you had the Paris Accords that were signed and getting ready. And there was a realization that one couldn't exist without the other. And they were put together under the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development Goals and Climate Change. And that's why there was so much debate about like whether to call this the 2030 Agenda of the, or the SDGs. But now that they came together, climate is not only part of it, it's just at the center of it. And it is urgent. And that's why the discussions of the COP are so disappointing. Either we stop this addiction to coal or all our efforts to tackle climate change will be doomed. People had the expectation that action was going to take place and that you know, like you were going to see decision makers taking decisive actions towards climate change. And I do think that there's a consensus 
that there was a disappointment about like the discussions of decision makers, which, by the way, actually emphasizes even more the point that we have about like governments are failing the mm. expectations of people. Yeah, and I'd say that to say it was a disappointment is like the biggest understatement of the year because we do know that the 2020s are going to be absolutely critical. The UN science consensus has said that emissions have to start coming down fast right now by 7% a year. Last year, they went up so is that even possible when we can't get governments to agree on what to do? It was indeed a big disappointment because if there was ever a time that we need to get the world on board and all the political leaders on board together to tackle climate change, it really is now. If you're looking for silver linings, though, there are two silver linings. Firstly, the very fact that the governments have not pulled together to act cohesively might just might spur more consumer protests and action and more pressure on companies to try and push for meaningful change. And if so, that would be good. Second possible silver lining is that the US has obviously been a difficult stumbling block in the whole process of getting major governments on board. However, one big theme I'm going to be looking out for in 2020 is to see whether the Republican Party starts to change its language or mood music on climate change at all. Because although Donald Trump has very clearly said he's not interested in talking about climate change, the reality is there's actually a growing number of senior Republicans who are pretty concerned. And they won't use the word climate change because that's such political dynamite in the US landscape right now. However, if you start hearing phrases like environmental protection, conservancy, energy self-sufficiency, pollution being tossed around a lot, that's a sign that actually the tone is starting to change, even if the word climate change is still taboo. Yeah. I remember when I was in Paris for COP21, it was really the French leadership that, along with Christiana Figueres, who really steered such a successful COP, at least that's from the news that I read. I wonder if you got a sense of what it was that went wrong this time round. There wasn't really clear-cut leadership, unfortunately, and there really is a growing divergence in the goals and the degree to which people think hitting those goals is realistic or not, sadly. The fourth topic that we wanted to pick, which probably is at the heart and the soul of what we are here at the Global Goalscast, which is the growing movement for change. And this is how we want to look ahead and look at businesses coming on board and jumping into the bridge of purpose and sustainability. I think that that's a great thing that happened this 2019, which is a great movement for change. Well, I would say if you're looking for signs of change, Firstly, in the course of the last year, I've spoken to masses of CEOs because that's kind of what I'm paid to do in my job at the F Financial Times, and I've been doing that for years. I have never seen a situation where almost every single CEO and C-suite member I, want, I have met wants to talk to some degree about environmental, social and governance issues. Never seen that before. Another sign of change is that we at the Financial Times launched something called Moral Money, this newsletter and platform. Woo! Woo <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. And that's going gangbusters. I mean, you know, it's got the highest in open rate of any newsletter we've launched because our readers are really, really interested in this kind of content, which was going to be pretty hard to imagine a year or two ago. And last tiny vignette is that 
Brussels recently issued a hefty roadmap for green finance, but it's also issued a very big taxonomy of how you define green bonds and green products. Although the rest of the world, particularly America, used to shrug when Brussels did things and say, oh, let's just ignore what Brussels is doing. Increasingly, I'm hearing people say, this could end up being like the GDPR of the green world. And by that, I mean Brussels came out a couple of years ago and drew up these fairly tight regulations for the tech sector and social media platforms, which initially only applied in Europe and people kind of ignored outside Europe, but actually ended up setting the standards globally and affecting any company with a global operation. So what Brussels is doing in the world of green right now could end up again having a real impact in the next year in how American companies and other companies and financial groups think about green issues and essentially raise the standards in ways that people weren't expecting. I was amazed to see that Europe actually pledged to be carbon neutral by 2050. And that was the news that came out last week ahead of the rather disappointing COP. Gillian, I wonder if you can talk me through something that I think is going to be an emerging issue next year, which is this idea of what's the role of central banks in climate change? We now know that Mark Carney is the Secretary General's advocate and emissary on climate change, but there's a real argument or debate or discussion starting about what the role is. Yes, climate risk should be looked at by central banks, but should central banks have their mission creep into shifting capital away from polluters towards greener companies? So those are the corporate bonds that they hold. I wonder if you have a view on that. Well, I certainly do have a view because it's going to be one of the hot potatoes of 2020. A bit of background, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, set up this group known as Network for Greening the Financial System. No prize for snappy, memorable name. Um, <laughs> La Papa Caliente. I know, exactly. But anyway, the NGFS was set up between the Bank of England, Bank of France, and the Central Bank of China, interestingly enough about two or three years ago. And initially, they just had six members. They've now got three dozen members. Almost every central bank in the advanced economies has joined, with the notable exception of Russia and guess what? Guess The who? United States. <laughs> yes, grown. Although the US actually may end up joining, although the Federal Reserve hasn't joined, the San Francisco Fed is a advisory member. And I wouldn't be surprised if the US Fed doesn't join soon as well. But anyway, they are looking at what they can do with green. And the best way to understand this is to use as a three-part schema I often use with Moral Money, our platform at the FT, which is to recognize that there are three incentives driving finance and business in this respect. Some companies want to actively change the world. Some want to do no harm to the world. And some want to do no harm to themselves. Hmm. And central banks certainly want to do no harm to themselves and they want to do no harm to the financial systems they oversee. And in that respect, they want to make sure that they are properly measuring the climate risk threats to banks and insurance companies' asset portfolios. So that's very important, and that's what they're definitely stepping up, and everyone agrees they have to do that, and they also have to look at their own portfolios. Second thing is doing no harm to the world, i.e. not backing ventures and enterprises which are obviously dangerous and risky and damaging. And there's a bit more controversy around that, but most central banks these days think they probably shouldn't be buying, say, coal mine bonds or something like that that are actively going to harm the environment. 
The really controversial part is about actively trying to change the world. And there's actually a lot of unease in central bank circles about the ideas of central banks actively trying to finance, say, renewable energies or anything which has a wider social and environmental purpose as a proactive direct goal, because that's seen as meddling too much in politics. Now I want to get you guys to give me your predictions. Will 2020 be the year we see movement to achieve the SDGs, coalescing in a way that makes success likely, or are the forces of delay, fragmentation, and short-term profit too powerful? Claudia, what do you think? I actually think that 2020 will be the year in which a lot of the the voice, a lot of the uh, tagline will be about action. So it will be the decade of action coming from the coalition of, you know, like the United Nations and partners. But also I think that young people are tired of listening to stuff without saying action. So I think that CEOs ideally will be talking more about the actions that they're doing, just about talking the talk. My second prediction about 2020 is that inclusion will become bigger. I think that I've seen it now with diversity and inclusion and overall the world being browner, more feminine and with a bigger heart. And so inclusive environment will become more important companies will have to manage expectations about what they can and they cannot do. Jillian, what about you? What's your prediction for 2020? Well, here are three things to watch. Firstly, accountants will become increasingly important. And yes, I know that activists (laughs) and, you know, philanthropists and people who work at the UN tend to go, oh my goodness me, accounting, how boring. But we're starting to see the new breed of warrior accountant who are trying to force companies and investment groups to actually measure the impact of climate change on portfolios. And that really matters because once that becomes revealed, there's more pressure on companies to act. Secondly, I think we're going to see the Japanese Olympics, 2020 Olympics, see Japan play a growing leadership role in trying to push forward the SDGs on the global stage Mm -hmm. and put a lot of pressure on companies to actually do things. Some of it will be greenwashing, but I do think we're going to see a lot more action there. And thirdly, I think pressure on the investment managers and the investment companies is going to keep rising because there is a new generation of wealthy millennials who have money and who are demanding that Wall Street names in Switzerland and London actually take action. And it'll be lovely to think that it's kind of mass market common people who drive change in financial products. In reality, it's the rich or the super rich who drive a lot of the change. And the fact is they're starting to move. Wow, Edie, I love that. Imagine if you're like a Japanese accountant. Wow, that's a young Japanese accountant. Edie, what about you? So my prediction is that the argument over climate action is going to become stronger ahead of now. Yet again, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's hosting COP26 in Glasgow in Scotland. I think we're going to see more cities, more businesses and more coalitions emerging to tackle climate change. I think we need amazing minds and courageous hearts to be tackling these issues. And I think it's going to be a very challenging year for those who care. Since I have the British accent, I will jump in quickly and speak about Boris Johnson and the UK because... There is a lot to be depressed right now about the UK. However, it so happens that green issues is one area where there really is a chink of light because the UK has already actually done a lot of very encouraging things about building public-private partnerships. And so against the odds, this really could be a chance for the UK to show, to use a great British 
than what it's made of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so, last words, 2020. Optimistic, pessimistic, mixed. Got to be optimistic because we're the start of a new decade and if you're not optimistic then, when can you be? There you go, <laughs> closing with Brexit. I love that, Edie. If you can't be an optimist, why get up in the morning? Wow, I love it. Honestly, after COP25 and after Brexit, having two brave minds here saying that they're optimistic, me for our change. I'm mixed for 2020, and I do think that it's going to be the year of Latinos, so I'm super optimistic about the year of Hispanics here in the U.S. But overall, I really want to see government stepping up, being more efficient, and businesses getting more ethics, more moral, as you said. But I just don't want to have like the break of a honeymoon with businesses too early, because if they cannot manage the expectations of what people have, then it's going to be a hard year. Okay, now it's time for our year-end special. Best of facts and actions from 2019. First, three facts from Aaron Kramer of BSR, Saskia Broyston of Eunice Social Business, and Robin Scott of A Political. We've heard from the UN that the world needs to reduce emissions 7.6% per year during the 2020s in order to keep warming below 1.5 degrees. That is an urgent call to action. My second fact is that last year, 26 individuals owned the same amount of money as 3.8 billion people who make up the poorest half of humanity. Despite the fact that extreme poverty has been going down, inequality has still been rising. Billionaires now have more wealth than ever before, while only 5% of all new income generated from the global growth trickles down to the poorest 60%. In a world where jobs are increasingly being lost to automation, the International Labour Organization estimates that the green economy could create 24 million jobs by 2030. And now three actions from Chris Fabian of UNICEF Innovation, Mohamed Yahya of UNDP, and Matthias Devi of UNICEF. First of all, please, if you haven't, sign up for Finland's online course on artificial intelligence. It's called Elements of AI, and you can find it through a quick Google search. Support the transformation of Africa, not through aid only, but through trade and other aspects. So the relationship between Africa and Europe has to be one of mutual beneficial system. Structurally transforming Africa is, is one of the things that will then allow young people to want to stay in their own countries, at least give them that option. Support youth to speak up and hear them. Whatever you're working on, whatever you're designing, whatever you're promoting, remember that 1.8 billion people in your potential audience are children and youth and that 90% of these live in developing countries. And this group has lots to say, and listening can both improve your work and their lives massively. Thank you to all our partners that have shared facts and actions in 2019. And thank you to Jillian for joining us and all our guests who shared their insights and stories with us this year. And thanks to you, to you, our dear listener. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe us via iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And follow us on social media at Global Goalscast. And a very personal special thanks 
to the wonderful team of Global Goalscast that has made this an incredible second year that we have from our editorial guru, Mike Oreskes, to Charles de Portobello, to Simon James, and Edie Losh, and Tina, and Michelle, and everybody that is supporting us all around the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful team. When you have a wonderful team, you produce wonderful things. Thank you for being with us this year. See you next year. Thank you to you, Claudia. And... <laughs> Global Goals Cast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial guru by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Kuprider and our interns, Tina Pastore and Brittany Segura. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music, one of the world's leading production music companies creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. This episode is brought to you by MasterCard, creating scalable solutions for sustainable and inclusive economic growth. Thanks also CBS News Digital and Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. The struggle is real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha is real. We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces bromeando y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando. La Lucha is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.